Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Cubs Related Podcast presented by CubsInsider.com. My name is Corey. I am joined as always by Brendan. We are coming to you on Thursday evening, April 22nd. And the Cubs have swept the New York Mets out of Wrigley Field and out of the city of Chicago. The Cubs' first sweep of the 2021 season and their first series win since that opening series with the Pirates. We will break down these three games with the Mets and get you set up for the series over the weekend with the Milwaukee Brewers. But Brendan, it was a, a weird series, uh, you know, a couple of uh, unorthodox ways to win at times, but feels good to be on here talking about a sweep, talking about three victories. Feels good. The importance of Chris Bryant being healthy and the importance of Chris Bryant showing how he adjusts. And we'll get into it, but it just, the, the series in particular made me appreciate, even though I always appreciate, just how good and valuable KB is to this team when he's when he's on. Yeah, absolutely. We talked about that in the last episode, you know, how good he and Wilson Contreras in particular have looked. That continued in this series, but a lot to discuss here. So let's just get into a quick recap of these three games. Obviously, we'll keep it brief. On Tuesday, the Cubs winning 3-1. to one. Jake Arrieta with another solid outing. He improves to 3-1 and one on the season, going five innings, three hits, one earned, three walks, and four strikeouts. His ERA on the season at a solid 2.86. The Cubs getting their three runs in this game via a Wilson Contreras uh, reaching on a throwing error. That was the first run, a gift from J.D. Davis, who provided a few in this series. Uh, Eric Sogard extended the lead to two to nothing with a single, and then the Mets walked Wilson Contreras with the bases loaded to make it three to nothing. J.D. Davis would uh, take back the gift he gave earlier with a home run to make it three to one, but that would be all that she wrote. Kimbrel picking up his fourth save on Tuesday. On Wednesday, the Cubs' offense exploding for their highest run total of the season. We had asked for crooked numbers on a more regular basis from this team, and they provided that on Wednesday. In the fourth inning, scoring seven runs. In the fifth, three runs. In the sixth, four runs. So a very solid uh, three-inning stretch there. The Cubs scoring 16 runs on 13 hits on Wednesday night. the uh, They also get a little help uh, from the Mets making four errors in this game. Uh, th- this was, th- there was moments in this game, Brendan, that, that definitely needed some circus music in the background from the Mets. I and, uh, you know, I, I have a, my, my good friend, Will, who is a Mets fan, just texting me like, I cannot believe what I am, <laughs> I am watching, just <laughs> constantly throwing the ball all over the infield. It was uh, very nice. Uh, but to recap how the Cubs got those runs, so the Cubs getting their runs a, a variety of ways in this one, but the big blow was a Javi Baez grand slam. This was not the deciding blow in the game, but certainly I think the one that we will all 
Remember the RBIs in this game? David Bodie had four of them. Javi, of course, with the Grand Slam had four of them. Matt Duffy had three of them. Jake Marisnik had two of them. Rizzo and Sogard each adding an RBI of their own. Zach Davies started this game. He goes four innings, five hits, two earned, two walks, two strikeouts. So a pretty mess start uh, again for Davies. Only two earned runs allowed, but not a lot of length there in his season ERA sitting in the high eights. So not exactly what you want to see. Alec Mills, really good in this game and kind of a a preview of the role I think that we expected out of him a little bit more. Uh, He goes three innings in this game, allowing just one hit, no runs, no walks, and two strikeouts. So kind of in that role, we had seen Mike Montgomery in prior seasons where he's able to give you some length uh, after the starter exits early and just kind of carry you through most of this game. Shelby Miller getting the last inning of this one to shut things down. Again, 16-4, to the final on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, the Cubs winning 4-3. to Behind, another solid start from Trevor Williams. He goes five innings, five hits, two earned, one walk, and six strikeouts. The bullpen, good behind him. Jason Adam, Ryan Tapera, Andrew Chafin, Craig Kimbrell, and Dan Winkler all combining to uh, get the job done there. The Cubs getting their runs on Thursday via a Wilson Contreras RBI single, a Chris Bryant two RBI double, And then the game winner in the bottom of the 10th, of course, the new extra innings rule puts the runners on. The Cubs and Dan Winkler got a big double play in the top half of the inning to prevent the Mets from capitalizing on that free runner on second base. And then it was Jason Hayward with a pinch hit walk-off single to bring in Javi Baez. Cubs win, Cubs sweep. And the Cubs are back to 500 at 9-9. and So, Brendan, kind of uh, all over the place in in this series. Uh, But I I think what stood out to me is this series felt like more of a representation of what you would... I mean, obviously they sweep, they win three games. So it sounds kind of stupid to say this is what you'd hope to see out of this team. But what I mean is that we had seen this team in in a series like, uh, like against Atlanta, you know, where they have a big explosion on offense in one of the games. But in a few of these series, like the Braves series and the Brewers series, they had lost some of those close games, right? But what we see here, especially on Tuesday, you know, the offense not firing on all cylinders, not, you know, kind of needing a little help from the Mets at times to push runs across, but but winning the games. The pitching staff coming through, keeping the Mets down, keeping it close, and the offense doing enough to win the games. And I think this this series, again, not just that they won, but more representative of, of what you'd hope from this team, right? We, we know it's going to be volatile, but sandwich mm-hmm. around the offensive explosion with some tight wins, and that's how this team is really going to be successful. You know, it was a weird series in that at times, I know they put up a lot of runs, and this is not to to express uh, negativity, because I'm, I'm not doing that, but it was a weird way they put up their runs. I mean, you recapped all those errors the Mets made, and at times it didn't feel like the Cubs deserved a lot of those runs, but it's beyond the point. The point being is that the bats from Wilson, from Rizzo, from KB, those top five guys, including Ian Happ, even though the results are not there, at some point, if you continue to show those approaches, you're going to get results. And pointing out Javi's grand slam, still not making the adjustments you want to see, but if you throw a mistake pitch to Javi, he's going to hit those. And he he did in the previous series as well for a home run. So it's, it's nothing to be unexpected with Javi. And I think overall, if the Cubs pitching staff can stay in the games, which they have been, even when they don't have their best stuff, this offense and their patient approach while swinging at hittable pitches should provide some competitive games. And looking specifically at that area at a game, like, dude, it was like 36 degrees when when Jake was pitching that night. Still no sleeves for him, though. (laughs) You will never wear sleeves. But if you look at how he attacked those Mets hitters, it was apparent he had no feel for a secondary pitch. And it goes to show you the value of like a veteran mindset like Jake, who's 
pitched through Wrigley, pitched through cold games, and he's able to keep his team in a competitive spot. And I bring that up, too, because Jake, for the majority of the year in his previous starts, he was hammering curveballs like 20% of the time. And he only threw like a handful of curveballs in that start against the Mets. He threw mostly fastballs, likely because he had no feel for that pitch. So even with his worst stuff of the year and his velo down, without that secondary curveball, Jake was still able to find a way to keep a team in the game. And that's exactly what happened. So it was a well-deserved sweep. The at-bats most of the time looked good. Weird way to put up runs. You still want to see Ian Happ get some results and get rewarded for those good plate approaches. You still want to see Javi uh, adapt a little bit. We didn't really see that, even though we had, even though we saw that grand slam. But the, the general takeaway is, is positive. And one last note for the series, like I think the way Ross has been managing the the last week or so, like I I'll commend him. I think that last game, uh, when it went to extras, the way he managed the mid innings, going to Jason Adam in the sixth inning, going then to Tapera against the weaker part of the Mets lineup, but pumping up Chaffin just in case there was some type of high leverage moments, which ended up being the case. You go to Chaffin, he comes in, puts out the fire, and you go to Craig a little bit earlier as well. And so I think the way he's managed these games, keeping the team in the game, sustaining leads when the offense has not been good, there's a reason why they're 9-9. Nine and nine, And they shouldn't be 9-9 nine nine right now with that run differential. Well, given some of these blowouts, maybe not so anymore, but they, they should not be 9-9 nine nine with that run differential sans that blowout game. And a lot of that credit, I think, has to be given to how Ross has managed a bullpen the last few uh, the last few games, Corey. I think it's been really impressive by him. Yeah, I I tend to agree with you. You know, no manager is going to be perfect, but I, I think more often than not, I think David is is doing the right things. And and I think one thing that we've seen from him, you know, obviously his career as a manager has been pretty short, but I I feel like he's definitely you know learning on the job, and you can kind of feel him. If he and he's admitted in in past instances when he felt like he made a mistake, and I, I think you really get the sense that he is putting in the work and and understanding if he feels like he made a mistake in a particular area and not to do it again. Um, so yeah. you know it's it's early in his managerial career, but I I've certainly liked what we've seen from David. But well, he said like two weeks ago that he did make a mistake. I forgot which scenario it was, but he you know he's open to the media about yeah. it. I don't. I mean, you can interpret it however you want, but him saying that at least shows that he has some degree of appraisal where he can go back and try to see what went wrong and, and correct that in the future. And to his credit, he's done that the last week. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, to your point uh, about the record and the offense and all that other stuff, you know, I, I do think, you know, ho- th- this series, again, like the, the offense, you know, you have a couple games where you only score three runs and a couple where you only score four. But I, I think, you know, being able to win close games, right? When, when we, we, we keep talking about how this was a team that had measured expectations, right? We, we wanted them to compete in a, a, a rough NL Central and maybe, you know, in that mid to high 80s, low 90s win total is what wins this NL Central. And winning games like Tuesday and Thursday, where, you know, you, you win a game 3-1 to one and you win a game 4-3, to three, that is critical to the success of teams that are not operating at that, you know, higher, higher level that, you know, perhaps a team like the Dodgers or some of these other teams are operating at. And I, and I know, again, that's one of those things that maybe sounds obvious, but it's worth pointing out, like, to succeed with a team like the Cubs have in, in a situation like they're in, you have got to find a way to win close games. You have got to find a way to pull out games like we saw them do on Tuesday and Thursday. And, you know, Tuesday in particular, where they get uh, a run via an error and a run via, you know, being patient at the plate and taking their walks to walk in a run with the bases loaded. That's the stuff you have to do. You know, I think some people will look at a couple of these instances and say, ah, the Mets were three, you know, they, they had two errors in one game, four errors in another. You know, this was the Mets being bad and blah, blah, blah. But that's what you got to do. You have to capitalize on the other team's mistakes. You have to capitalize on those opportunities. And the Cubs did that in this series. And then in one of the games, you know, they blew them out. So 
this is obviously what you want to see from this team and and hopefully something that they can continue to do and hopefully something they can build on going into this series with the Brewers over the weekend. But one one thing I, I, I want to go back to that, that you mentioned already, Brendan, was uh, Trevor Williams and, and Jake Arrieta in particular. Yeah. And I think so far on this season, we've really seen exactly what you would have hoped for out of these two guys. Now, I think in general, the starting rotation is going to have to provide more length at some point, right? In this series, the starters only go five innings on Tuesday with Arietta. Uh, four innings with Davies on Wednesday, and then five again with Williams on Thursday. So you're going to need more length there, especially as Kyle Hendricks is, you know, usually a little slower to get up to like peak Hendricks uh, territory. But for both of these guys to, you know, more often than not so far be doing exactly what I've been saying this whole time, right? They are keeping the team in the game. Trevor Williams in three out of his four outings has gone at least five innings and given up no, you know, two runs or less in three of these four starts. That's exactly what you're asking for from him. He's a guy they signed for very little money to be, you know, technically he was the fourth starter, right, with Alzali starting that fifth day. So whatever, but he's a back end of the rotation guy who has given this team an opportunity to win games three out of four times. Arietta's had a few quality starts, and same thing as Williams. The other time, keeping the team in the game. And that's what you're asking out of these guys. Obviously, you're going to need more length at some point. You're asking a lot from the bullpen. You know, the bullpen being asked to cover so many innings in this series, it's it's not something you are going to want to keep doing going forward. But I think the early returns on this rotation are are fine. You know, in general, I, the, the pitching staff is obviously walking uh, a lot of guys, which is, you know, not something that you want to see. But in terms of the starters doing their job and, and I think meeting the expectations that you would have had for them, I, I think they're, they're, they're doing as best they can. Davies is really the one right now who, who needs to kind of step it up, though. There, there's one encouraging sign from Davies from that start. It, it wasn't good, but the one encouraging sign might be that changeup effectiveness. So the command was bad overall, but when his changeup was working, he did get four whiffs on 10 swings with that changeup overall. A 20% whiff rate when you take into account how many changeups he threw, that, that's encouraging to see. Now, if the command tightens up, given how that changeup plays, I expect him to be fine. Uh, why that command has been shaky, I'm not sure, but you can go back and look at the video. All of his pitches, not all of them, I'm exaggerating, but a good majority of his pitches are leaking over the middle of the plate. And actually, that's what's happening to Hendricks too. So Hendricks' stuff... I think he's been playing pretty well, and his fastball is sitting around 86, 87, 88, but his command has been off. His heat map for his sinker is like mostly in the middle of the plate, so everything is just leaking back in the middle for both Davies and Kyle, and both of them with that velo being in the upper 80s, you're not going to get away with that. As far as Williams goes, he continued a lot of the trends we've highlighted over the past few weeks in his starts, and that main trend is that curveball usage. And JD brought it up on the on the broadcast today, saying, "Hey, he looks like he's throwing more uh, curveballs." And and he is. Remember, this was a guy who two years ago threw a curveball under one percent of the time. Last year, he spiked it up to around seven percent. This year, he's around fourteen percent. And against the Mets in his last start, again, he threw a thirteen percent of the time. So he's become this five-pitch pitcher where he's mixing in four seams and sinkers and curves and sliders and change-ups. And he has a very diverse arsenal now, Corey. And that curveball's been effective. And that fastball, that fastball against the Mets was sneaky effective. I didn't realize how effective it was. He got eight whiffs on that four-seam fastball. That whiff rate was over 30%, Corey, and an average whiff rate is three times less than that. So it's it's just one game. It goes to show you that a lot of his pitches are playing off each other, and to have that many whiffs in one start off your four-seam fastball, not even your secondary pitch, in under six innings, that's impressive by Trevor. And I think it's a lot of credit, once again, to Tommy Ottavi and his pitching development infrastructure. But as the season goes on, this team is going to have to have like a number two guy step up, assuming Kyle does get back into shape, which he should be. But you look at 
pitchers like Jake and Trevor and Adber. And you can see that with as the season goes along, that maybe maybe one of them can step up. I think my money in terms of like a high leverage game, just given off of pure stuff at this point, might be Adbear. But if Trevor Williams continues to incorporate all these new pitches and these new pitch grips and keeps getting whiffs and keeps attacking hitters up in his zone with fastballs, by the way, he threw over 30 uh, four seams in that game against the Mets. Only four of them were below the belt, Corey. Most of his four seams were up in the zone. So again, it's a huge shift by Trevor Williams now with five pitches, changing up the sequencing, changing up the location at which he throws. It's encouraging to see him maybe going into a tier that's not your four starter. That's maybe your three starter. Two starter is probably your peak and your like 90th percentile projection, but you know, crazy things happen in this sport. And I would not be surprised if Williams this year goes on, ends up being that top three starter for this team. Yeah, so I think you know that that's something to keep an eye on going forward. Adbear is going to be back up and start this weekend against the Brewers, so obviously you know that's exciting because I think we all have uh, pretty high expectations for what he can do and and are just yeah. excited to see him again. Um, but that that's something to watch going forward is you know keeping the team in the game like Arietta and Williams did in these games against the Mets is good, but ultimately it is a low bar, right? And at some point, you know, asking the bullpen to go four innings or, you know, when you go extras on Thursday, five innings, that's going to be a lot going forward. At some point, you're, you're going to need to start rolling in some more uh, length from this team, even if they, you know, keeping them in the game is good, but at some point, it's just a lot to ask for the bullpen. So that's really like that next step, I think, for this rotation is is obviously getting Hendricks right, which will happen, uh, and then, you know, having some of these guys step up to, to deliver length uh, a little more consistently. But let's go to some roster news. Uh, Jock Peterson, before the game on Thursday, put on the 10-day IL retroactive to Wednesday, so just uh, an early, you know, a day earlier. And the corresponding move. Welcome back, Nico Horner from the mm, alternate mm, site. Mm, 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 mm. Uh, so you know, this is this is one of those moves. Uh, unfortunate for for Jock, obviously, you know, and he said this. Uh, obviously, not how he wanted to start this season, especially coming off such a successful spring training in the Cactus League, uh, but that is, you know, where things are, and so he'll be back in a little bit. Um, I, I think not really surprising that Nico is the move here. I think, you know, uh, this presents an opportunity for him to get some playing time if they move some guys around, you know, especially if KB heads to the outfield or, or whatever they want to do. I we, we don't really have much of an indication as to the long-term plan uh, as it relates to Nico. I, you know, so like, I, I don't know uh, if he's going to stay up. I, I kind of would expect that once the, the minor league season gets underway, they do still want him to get those everyday plate appearances, but we'll see. Um, in the meantime, though, Brendan, I, I think it's worth discussing a little bit, you know, how the Cubs go about things in these next, you know, nine days or whatever it is while Jock is on the IL and Nico is here. And I think worth pointing out, in, interesting from David Ross in these last two games, uh, we do see Matt Duffy and Jake Marisnik getting uh, starts in both of these games with KB in the outfield. And, uh, you know, obviously Jock, we now know, was hurt, uh, but also Jason Hayward sitting these last two games against left-handed pitchers. Obviously, he comes in to pinch hit and wins the game, which is nice for everybody involved. Um, but how do you think, do you think that this is, uh, you know, kind of how we see things? Where do you expect Nico to slot in? Uh, again, let's let's keep it to just while Jock is on the IL because we, sure. we don't know exactly what their plan is with Nico, so I, I, I don't necessarily want to uh, speculate as to, you know, whether this is his chance to earn the second base job back again or anything like that because I don't think that that's... Um, I don't want to say, you know, fair to Bodie, but if you envisioned him as the starter, I don't think we've gotten a, a clear enough look at that, right, in only 18 games. But how do, you, how do you see them going about all this playing time? Do you see KB kind of sticking in the outfield a little bit more? Where would you go uh, while Jock is out? Well, I like seeing KB in the outfield. You know, in theory, the way I think about it now, 
is you can slot in Nico at second base, shift over Bodie to third base, and then you put David, or I'm sorry, you put Chris in left field, and you keep Ian in center, you keep Jay Hay in right, and you just let that play out. A few other ways you can think about doing this is you have, uh, instead of Bodie at third base, you can put him at second base, have Duffy play third base, or on the other way around, you can have Nico at second base and Duffy at third base, and KB goes to the outfield. I mean, we saw KB in the series make a nice sliding play in right field, so he can play the corner outfield pretty well. Now, last year, and we've we've heard this several times now, and we saw Nico get tested out right. in these roles, he, he has played center. Uh, now, the degree of... Him being comfortable in center, we don't we don't know, but you can also see a scenario where you you want to keep Chris at third base just to keep him fresh. That that's fine. Keep him at third base. Put David or or uh, Duffy at second base, or ugh, I'm, I'm not going to say Sogard's name, but you can still have uh, Nico in center field, and you shift over Ian Happ to left field. This is all to say you can make it work. And if you're going to have Nico up here for the next like week and a half at, at least. I, I want to see him play. Right. I want to see him play the the majority of the time. If you're going to bring him up, play the guy. Don't don't let him sit, and let Sogard be your mop up guy. Let Sogard do exactly what he did in that third game. Let him come in in the tenth inning. Let him take his walk, his intentional walk, and waste his appearance. Let him be the last guy off the bench. Uh, Nico's up. Nico needs to play. Bodie needs to play. You can play both of them at the same time. Uh, not to say this is like a blessing in disguise. I don't want to use that cliche, but like you have an opportunity to see what Bodie has and Nico has at the exact same time against the exact same pitchers for at least a week and a half. Take advantage of it. Right. And I, I have to assume that that's part of the motivation here. Um, you know, we, we've talked about Nico, uh, you know, a lot in that whole situation, but clearly, you know, they're taking the opportunity with Jock out as a way to get Nico opportunities. I, I, I mean, I, I, I don't think they would bring him up to sit on the bench, right? And that doesn't mean he's going to start every game, but I, I don't think you bring him up here to get a couple of plate appearances over the next week or so, right? Like, if you're bringing him up, yeah. it's because you have an opportunity for him to get some looks. And, you know, he also, he makes more contact, right? He plays really good defense, so he does do some things that you wouldn't mind getting into this lineup. Um, obviously, they're, they have their reasons uh, for not having him break camp with the team in the first place, you know, so that's not all solved uh, because he's been at the alternate site for a couple weeks. I, I don't think that that's uh, the implication, but I, I think clearly if they're bringing him up as that first guy, right, when somebody goes down, they're going to use him in some capacity. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm all for mixing and matching. I mean, I think, you know, that's one of the really impressive things about Chris Bryant is you put him in the outfield and oh, yeah. he looks great. Um, you know, he's just... So he he's just great. great. Chris Bryant is great. Um, <laughs> he's just great. That's the analysis you guys pay for. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, like he he can do whatever you want, and and he's a solid outfielder, like you said, Brendan. He's making sliding plays. He's he's doing all the right things. So I'm for whatever they they really want to do here. I I do think you know we do want to see more of David Bodie. Like I said, it's only been 18 games. You broke camp and said he was the starter. Said it was his job. Said he earned the job. So I think, you know, you still need to keep giving him looks to really pay that off or, or to be true to your word on that one. And I would get Nico in there whenever I could. Like I said, I, I'm not I'm not positive what their plan is here. I, I, I would be, I, I don't want to say surprised because I, I just don't really know. But I, I do still kind of imagine that at some point he goes back to AAA just to start every day. Um, but who knows, right? Like I, you know, sometimes I have no idea what the Cubs are thinking or, or what they're doing. Um, but while you've got him here, get him in there, get him some opportunities. He had a, you know, pinch hit spot in the game on Thursday, uh, you know, popped out to the outfield, but I would expect to see him because otherwise I don't really understand the point of, of bringing him up. Um, hmm. but I also, you know, I like, uh, you know, I, I again, like not necessarily out there every game, but I like Mariznick, man. You know, like he, he's not, uh, he, he's not one of those guys who, who's going to explode off the stat sheet, you know, and, and, and right now, you know, in, in limited action, he's only, you know, got a 680 OPS, 
but I, I, I just he brings something, you know. And we've had so many guys on the bench for the Cubs in the last few years where you just feel like, what is this guy doing on the team, right? Like, what is this guy offering, even situationally, right? And you guys, you know, I don't have to name names. You guys know a couple <laughs> no, of guys that I'm talking about. One of them was in the other dugout for this series. <laughs> um, but I, I feel like Marisnik really does bring something right? He he has that speed, which is so deceptive because of how tall he is. But he and, he, and he puts together good at-bats. In the game on Thursday, he had a 10-pitch at-bat that he, a 10-pitch plate appearance in, that he turned into a walk at one point fouled off four straight pitches in the plate appearance, takes his walk, and he's got that speed, man. And, and so again, like he's not like some special player that, you know, I'm saying he should be starting every day. But I think, you know, just in seeing him in the early going here, like, I, I like him as a bench guy. I like him as someone that Ross can pick and choose those matchups, pick and choose those starts occasionally. I, I think he, mm-hmm. he brings something to this team, which is, which is a nice change of pace, you know, from some of the, the, the depth guys that we've seen in the past. He does it. And I feel like we, we talk about Marisnik every every episode, which, which in, in, a, in a positive light. And looking at some of the underlying numbers with Marisnik, Corey, I think like when people hear that you have like, like you just like seeing him and what he brings, that's different. Like he is different and he does have a sprint speed by the numbers that's that's top tier. I mean, over the last four, five seasons now, actually, his sprint speeds in the 95th percentile. The guy's six foot four. I mean, we saw in that Mets game, I mean, he takes longer strides than Chris Bryant. And we've had, you know, we've talked about Chris Bryant's strides on the base paths for years now. That's saying something. But one other key feature that does intrigue me with Marisnik is he has the potential to hit the ball extremely hard. The problem, though, is he doesn't do it that often. That's why you see his his career WRC plus of 81. Well below league average. Not not someone you want to start on a night-to-night basis. But at times, and it goes to show you his underlying raw skills, is that his max exit velocity, the hardest he hits the ball, is better than 85% of the of the league. So when he does make hard contact, it's really, really hard. Now, how often he does that is is a problem, as I said, but it goes to show you that if you can make some tweaks, if the Cubs can help him adjust, he has the underlying profile to be a successful big leaguer. And his defense, that that's the one feature I love most about Marisnik, and it's a great contrast to to Amora from years past. Like we've heard, and it's, I mean, too much, we've heard... Al being praised for his defense, and yeah, he looks fluid out there, but a lot of the underlying defensive metrics don't back that up, from UZR to baseball savant stack has tracked measurements. I mean, Al, is, is he's never been a top-tier defender, man. Now, when you look at Marisnik, he has an outfield to jump that's like better than 90% of the league, and it's been that way for years, and he's he just looks like an athlete, looks like an athlete. And if he can have some more consistent playing time, and if for some reason or some, I don't want to call it a miracle because it's not the right word because it is low probability, but if he can find a way to adjust, th- this is a this is a legit big leaguer. And you saw it on display. He had that triple down the right field line and went the other way. I, I like it. I, I'm intrigued yeah. by it. I'm not going to bet money that he's going to turn into something that's like sustainable, but at least in the early term here, I enjoy watching him play baseball. Yeah. I see him on the field. I like what I see. I kind of want to see more. I'm not saying this this guy's going to be like a starter or whatever, but as your fourth or fifth outfielder, yeah, like I, I like it. I want to see more. Yeah. Love the hair too. Him and Trevor Williams oh, yeah. providing fantastic. us with yeah. some flow, which is which is oh, always yeah. nice. Um, yeah, again, like just as someone who's, who's on the bench for Ross to deploy when he sees fit. I like it. I think there's something there. And, and like you said, Brennan, like, you know, it's it's simple, but having guys that can smash the ball and hit it as hard as possible is never a bad thing. Sometimes it's not easy to unearth it and get them to do it a lot, but not every player in the league has that ability, right? So if you have those guys, it's it's worth seeing if you can... Especially at Wrigley Field too, Corey. Right. I mean, we saw it again and in, in, in that Mets game. He didn't score because they couldn't get him in, but like a hard hit triple down the right field line... 
and now is an easy triple. The the defense makes one bobble, and he's going home, Corey. So that that's going to play well at Wrigley and in those in those big outfield gaps that you see in the NL. Right, and this series, you know, especially the game, uh, you know, some moments throughout the series, but especially the game on. Uh, Wednesday when they score 16 runs, a great lesson for everybody in why everybody is always obsessed with how much the Cubs strike out, right? Because we saw throughout this series the benefit of putting the ball in play, right? Like it was very clear on on Wednesday, the Cubs score 16 runs, uh, four of them via the Javi Baez Grand Slam. So they scored 12 runs without hitting a home run, right? And we saw it throughout the series, the Mets making a lot of errors, a lot of bad plays. Uh, You know, you had that one dribbler up the middle from Wilson Contreras that he turned into a double because the Mets, again, were clowning around. It, It was just a lesson, this series, in sometimes being able to put the ball in play relentlessly, sometimes good things happen. Not not always, but sometimes good things happen. And so, you know, that's that that was a, a good reminder of that. But Speaking of, you know, the the offense, you know, now that we we kind of uh, have discussed a little bit of what the Cubs can do here with Jock Peterson out, I know we talked about him the other day, um, but y'all are nuts if you didn't think we're going to talk about Chris Bryant some more. Oh, yeah. Um, Because if you have been a loyal listener of this podcast, as I know many of you are, and we appreciate that very much, you know that there 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 may be some equals right there are a lot of people who deserve credit uh not that i think it's a crazy position to take but a lot of people that have never wavered on their support of chris bryant and who have maintained uh, like we have that if he is healthy he is one of the best players in major league baseball and so while he has started 2021 doing just that you you bet we are going to come on here and talk about it. Um, right now, after the game on Thursday, Chris Bryant is sporting a slash line of 283, 380, 617. His weighted on-base average is 420, and his WRC plus is 165. Those latter uh, two numbers, his WOBA and his WRC plus, both would be uh, significantly better than his 2016 numbers. And you may remember in 2016, he was the National League MVP. He was also uh, a member of the Chicago Cubs, of course, in 2016, who went on to win the World Series. World Series, correct. Yes. So I I don't even have anything specific to dig into because my my reply would be, well, this is what I expected all along, right? Like if you've been listening to us, even in 2020, like it's, it's so clear with him that if the performance doesn't look like this, he's hurt. He's dealing with something that is affecting that performance. And sometimes it's a glaringly obvious thing, you know, like where he'll make a diving play and he'll get up a little slow and, you know, then all of a sudden he's he's not there or he has the knee injury. And, and it's, it's, it's always so easy to tie the numbers directly into when he gets hurt or when some sort of nagging injury pops up. And... To see him performing like this, just ripping the ball, destroying mistakes, just killing lefties. I mean, this is vintage Chris Bryant right now, Brendan. And it's amazing to see. And he deserves it because, I, you know, he's just one of those guys who I think has gotten way too much unnecessary flack from some fans and especially some writers uh, that just seem unwilling to accept the fact that if the performance doesn't look like this, if he's not hitting like one of the best players in baseball, it's because he is hurt. And, you know, in a, in a season like 2020 or at other times, I, I understand that that doesn't, you know, uh, absolve the, the performance. It, it doesn't change the results for the Cubs on the field. But as far as Chris Bryant, the human being, Chris Bryant, the player, how many times, Brendan, have we said, like, if you call him soft or things like that, you're an idiot. And I stand by that. And it's it's just, it makes me very, very happy to see him. And it's early in the season, right? Just like it is for the guys who aren't performing well. You know, there's a long way to go in the season. But it makes me very, very happy for Chris that he is out there 
showing what he can do and and showing everybody like you, you know some of you guys can think whatever you want about me but when I'm right when I'm not playing through an injury I am one of the best players in major league baseball and I don't know if it's going to be the Cubs I would like it to be uh but I also am happy for him that in a year where he's going out there and he's going to have to go get himself a contract and get his money I'm glad he's playing like this because he deserves it and I hope it's the Cubs giving him the money uh, I don't really know if I expect that, just given the way things have played out and how that Rizzo situation was was handled or has been handled to this point. But I'm happy for Chris that he's performing at this level uh, in a year that's very important to the Cubs and very important to him. There is a lot going on with Chris's adjustments this year. We saw a little bit of that in 2019, and we talked a little bit about this on the last episode, but it's important because what Chris is doing is combating what pitchers are intentionally trying to get him out with, and that's fastballs up in the zone. And the one really standout number that should jump right out to you is the just number of hard hit balls he has at the top of of the zone. Last year in 2020, when he was injured, when he was off the COVID season, only had four hard hit pitches at the top of the zone. This year, already, only through 18 games, he has eight, Corey, eight, double that in a, in 66% fewer games. This is big. This is really big, especially over the past two years. His WOBA against those pitches have been around 250 against those up and in pitches. And against the Mets in that last game, he smacked a 99 mile per hour pitch at the top of the zone. Didn't barrel it, granted, but had put enough of the barrel on it to get that hard hit single to left field, which started things off. So this is all to say that when Chris is healthy and he's on, he has the intellect. He has the talent. He has the the attitude to get through these types of adjustment phases, and he's doing it. And we've had Mike Bryant, his father, his hitting coach on a few times now over the past five years. Um, the most recent time we talked to Mike, he was really highlighting the changes that they wanted to make against those up and in pitches. This has been a center for them over the past few years, and they're they're having success with it and it's looking better and there are changes. And I think that should be noteworthy as you continue to watch Chris this year. I mean, he has a four, he's a 420 weighted on base average uh, right now. And that's, that's not a fluke. That is a legit 420 weighted on base average, man. Like what he's doing right now is not driven by randomness. It's not driven by luck. This is an MVP caliber player, which by the way, Corey plays third base, plays left field, plays right field, plays first base, can play center field if you really, really need him to. He is, when healthy, one of the most valuable players in the league. And if he continues to stay healthy, you're going to get these numbers, these top-tier offensive numbers to go along with his defensive versatilities and his top-tier base running, which, by the way, he was safe on that stolen base on on Thursday's game. So this is an all-around player. Man, and if you want to give money out to everyone, I love Tony. You give him his money too, but secondary to Tony, you give this man his money. He deserves it. You may want to see more of it as the year goes along to make sure he's healthy and able to continue these adjustments. But if these adjustments do continue, you give this man the money. He is the reason, in addition to Wilson and the bullpen right now, he is the driving force yeah. of this record. And they don't deserve to be 9-9. Nine and nine. With their run differential, you take away that 14-run game, a lot of those runs by errors, they they should be like, you know, six or seven wins. This is a huge reason why we're even talking about the Cubs in an optimistic sense right now. Yeah, and one thing I want to highlight that, you know, I think we've highlighted before and, you know, certainly is something that we've kept track of over the years— but one of the the more impressive things I think that an individual player has done uh, throughout the time, at least that we've been podcasting about this team, KB's K rate right now is twenty one point one percent, and I, I'm always just so fascinated and impressed by that because it was such the talking point in his rookie year and when he came up about how much he strikes out. Even though he won Rookie of the Year, he had a six WAR season, but 
so many people just talked about that K rate, and it was 30.6%. It, it, it went down to 22% in 2016, 19% in 2017, and stayed right around that 22%-ish area. 2020, it was up at 27%, again, because he was very obviously hurt and playing through injuries. Um, but 21% now, it, it, the, his ability to maintain his offense and his ability to create runs and generate runs, hit home runs, etc., while lowering that K rate and keeping that walk rate at around the same, you know, uh, 12, 13% area, just so impressive, Brendan, and and especially because of how much of a talking point it was uh, from writers and, and other analysts. You know, he strikes out too much. It's a great season, but he strikes out too much, you know, and for him to just continue not only making that adjustment, but the adjustments that you're talking about too. Like he's never satisfied, you know? So now he see, like you said, he sees that pitchers are trying to come up and in on him. He's making the adjustment to that too. He he is just such an impressive baseball player. And I, th- these are those moments where, again, like I I think a, a lot of you listen, if, if you've been listening to us for a long time, I would think hopefully at least you considered this stuff. Uh, otherwise, you're listening to us a lot and disagreeing with us, but that's fine. Um, so I think a lot of you know this, but it, it just is one of those things where a, a segment of the fan base and the writers are just so unfair to him that it, it's it's worth continuing to highlight and highlight so frequently like how impressive he is and and the work that he puts in to continue being a better player and I I'm like I said I'm, I'm very happy for him and and like you said Brendan it's very important for this team uh you know while you're waiting for some of these guys to get cooking a little bit or you know for their results to be a little more uh, lucky or normalize, however you want to phrase that. It's huge that Chris Bryant and also Wilson Contreras in particular have been such the forces on offense that they've been. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the credit too, as as much as we talk about KB, we take, and when I say we, I I always mean me. Like I I, I take Willie for, for granted and I take a lot of the adjustments he's made for granted both offensively and uh, defensively as well. I mean, right now, this is a catcher who has an isolated power of close to 300, Corey. He ends the game against the Mets, the series against the Mets, with a WRC plus of 153, a weighted on base average of 402. And like KB, those are not fluky numbers, man. He has five home runs right now. And he started 16 games, 16 of the 18 games the Cubs have played, have included Wilson starting behind the dish, batting in the top of the lineup. You don't you don't see this in this in this era of baseball. You don't see catchers start this many games while being the main driving offensive force for the lineup, which also is kind of concerning because we don't really have a legit backup right now, and you do want to protect Wilson as the year goes along. But you know, if Wilson's called upon every single day. Even if his legs are jacked up, you it. know, damn, he's gonna do yeah. it, man. He's gonna do it. I, I, I love, I, I love Wilson. And as, he, as the years have gone along, there have been moments where I'm like, you know, it's like, like, calm down a little bit. Stop, stop talking trash to Yadi Molina a little bit. Like, you know, be a little bit careful. I, I'm kind, I'm kind of over that. He's gonna be 29 years old soon. He deserves his respect. He deserves his respect. He's been one of the most. Uh, used catchers the moment he's been called up and for every single ounce of success I mean to hear him and see him cry over his all-star selection years ago as we talk about Javi you know living baseball breathing baseball Wilson's in the same conversation I feel like as we look back on Wilson 10 years from now we're going to really miss the attitude he brought, the energy he brought. Yeah, it's it's been a big start for those two guys, and I'm with you on on Wilson. Let him fly, let him do his thing. I I, I don't think it's a good strategy for him to play 162 games. While I realize that he would do it, um, but yeah, you 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 probably are going to want to get him a rest every uh, every now and again. Um, again, as as much as we all know, he would literally play. He played 500 games in a row. He doesn't care. But I I yeah, it's it's been a very impressive impressive start for him. And, you know, I, I remember when the season started, you know, as we were ending spring training, I, I liked him in the two and, and I still do. I, I think it's, uh, 
it was one of those things where, you know, we said that if, you know, some of these guys showed better and you maybe wanted to shake it up, that was fine, but but nice to, you know, maybe start with a top two that was a little different than we'd seen in past years, and, and I like it. And, and, you know, just touching on the top two as, as we're, uh, you know, nearing an hour here, I, you know, still think like Hap is... I, I think he deserves better. I, when when we ended the last podcast, I said that I wanted you know to see a nice series out of him because I thought you know, he's got a 526 OPS right now, and I think a lot of the underlying numbers for him don't bear out that that's what he deserves. His expected numbers are much better than that if you uh, look into those um, Statcast you know and expected numbers. His plate discipline and stuff like that has been good. Now, you mentioned on the last pod, and I and I think you're correct, obviously, Brendan, that, you know, when you don't make as much contact, when you have such a low contact rate, you are susceptible to bad luck, right? That's yeah. that's just kind of the the way that works. If if uh, you don't put the ball in play as much, you are susceptible that in the lesser amount of times that you're making contact, you might be unlucky. And then unfortunately, your numbers aren't going to be that good. Yeah. But I, I, he, you know, his his slash line right now, you know, a one fifty five average and a five twenty six uh, OPS. He, he, in terms of how he looks at the plate, his discipline and all of that, he he deserves better than that. So I, I think he will turn it around. Um, Soon, you know, and and Thursday uh, was an ugly game for him. That that strikeout, uh, batting right-handed, which is his weaker side, um, you know, with the runner on third and less than two outs, he strikes out. That that was not good. But I think overall, he he deserves better than the results that he's gotten. Um, so hopefully, you know, again, I'm I, I'm probably just going to keep saying this. Hopefully, <laughs> this weekend against the Brewers is uh, a better, you know, maybe a stat line patter for Hap because I I think he just deserves better than where he's sitting right well, now. Well, even in that last game against the Mets, he had a line drive to right field that was unfortunately caught or bobbled rather. They called it an out, but whatever. Uh, but his overall line this year, it's funny because he mentioned it to the media. His expected weighted on base average going into that game on Thursday was 336. So above league average, not where you want to see him. Last year, his expected weight on base average was 360, but his underlying numbers this year, which explains why it's a 336 expected Woba, is because his average exit velos in the 70th percentile, his hard hit rate is in the 80th percentile. His walk rate is among the best in Major League Baseball, the 97th percentile for that walk rate, which as a leadoff hitter, that's what you want, man. The issue, and we'll keep harping on it until it gets improved a little bit, but his issue is that whiff rate. So right now, 90% of hitters in the league have a better contact rate than Ian Happ. So again, you brought it up, Corey, but it goes to show you that when you don't make that much contact and when you're a left-handed batter who faces the shift, even though it's not a drastic shift, even though a slight shift, you could run into some luck in some uh, some small samples. And that's basically what's going on right now. But as he continues with this approach, continues to see pitches, I think the results are going to come. Uh, as we've talked about for the first few weeks here, the reason a lot of these Cubs hitters have been struggling, including Javi, they're missing their fastball. Simple as that. You look at uh, Ian Happ this year. Pitchers are throwing way more fastballs than Ian Happ. Last year in 2020, he saw a fastball 56% of the time. This year so far, seeing it 63% of the time. Some of the eye test does back that up, swinging through fastballs that you think you should be hitting, but it's still early. The approach is still sound. Javi's approach has not been sound. Ian Happ's approach has been sound. At some point, you do expect him to to normalize out. Yeah, and just one last thing on Happ before we preview this Brewers series. But I think that Happ is one of those guys who you can be confident that he's not going to let these numbers bring him down or you know change the adjustments that he's made over the years and you know what led him to the early success, especially that he had in 2020. There was a good article, I think it was from Jordan Bastion of MLB.com, but I could be wrong, um, you know, where Hap was talking about those expected stats and stat cast numbers and things like that. And, you know, 
at some point, right, you, you got to see results, right? You, you can't just be looking at, oh, well, my expected OPS is really good. And, you know, like the expected batting average on that line drive, right, that he hit on, on Thursday is uh, really high, but it just didn't fall. At some point, you got to see results, sure. But I think what's important with Hap, especially as a guy who's the leadoff hitter for this team, is that I don't I don't think the results not being there is going to take him out of his approach. I think you can be confident that he's got that mindset, he's got that intelligence, and he's got that understanding of some of the new paradigms in the game of baseball with these these metrics and technologies and stuff like that, that he trusts the process. And, you know, th- that's important, especially for someone that's as young as Hap and someone who is in that leadoff spot, you know, to trust that your approach is right. And, you know, of course, there's adjustments that everybody can make. But I think with with other guys, and, you know, we've sort of seen this in in the past at times, these types of numbers, especially as the leadoff hitter, can create a bit of a spiral, right? And can get you in your head a little bit and can have you making adjustments that you don't really want to be making, uh, you know, for the sake of just trying to get better results. And so I think, you know, Hap is one of those guys who it's a 162 game season and you got to trust the process. Because again, I think a lot of the underlying stuff for him, not everything, right? We've talked about the contact rate, but a lot of the underlying stuff is good. And I think you can trust Hap to stick with it and the results will come. Okay, let's preview this upcoming series against the Milwaukee Brewers. And Milwaukee will go to Wrigley Field. First game, Friday, 1.20 p.m. Central. We have Brett Anderson on the mound for Milwaukee. We have Kyle Hendricks looking to rebound. Kyle on the year is 0-2 with a 6.92 ERA. Brett Anderson on the year is 2-1 with a 2.65 ERA. Then on Saturday... We have another afternoon start time of 1.20 p.m. Freddie Peralta back on the mound for Milwaukee. Uh, he'll be facing Adbert Alzali back from the uh, off-site, making another start for the Cubs. Alzali on the year is 0-2 with a 6.1 ERA. We have Peralta, who's 2-0 with a 2.00 ERA. Then on Sunday, to finish off this three-game set, we have Brandon Woodruff on the mound for Milwaukee, 1-0 with a 1.96 ERA. We'll be facing Jake Arietta, 3-1 with a 2.86 ERA as it stands now. Milwaukee, 11-7 on the year. They're in first place, up two games on the Cubs, who are 9-9. In terms of what we're looking for, what I'm looking for, continue that approach, continue hitting high fastballs. We saw Peralta, we saw Woodruff, Woodruff hammer down the Cubs the last time they faced them. Hopefully the second time out, the results will be better. But I think ultimately you want to see Ian App get some results, get rewarded for that approach, continue to have KB hitting those high pitches, Wilson doing his thing. I think the most important feature of this series is just getting Kyle back on track. Again, his stuff has been good. The velo has been good the last two starts out. Maybe not where it typically is in like August and September, but when you're hovering around 87 with him, that suggests his mechanics are strong. It's just a matter of time getting locked in. And I think it could be it could happen any 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 day, any start. Kyle could be back. So that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, I think uh, looking for, you know, again, like what we talked about with how they're going to manage the playing time of everybody with Jock out, you know, who they're going to put in the outfield, how often do we see Nico, where do we see Nico, stuff like that. Uh, and then like you, you know, hoping for Kyle Hendricks to, to get on the, on the right path here. We know it'll happen eventually, but the sooner the better, obviously. Uh, and then again, like I was just talking about, I mean, I, I think, you know, would be, uh, I think, a, a nice relief for Ian Happ to have a big series, yeah. maybe hit a bomb or two, and or just feel a little bit of that weight off of his shoulders uh, with a slow start. But really, I mean, what I'm hoping for is that this sweep, this series is, you know, we we can start something here, right? They're back at 500, and I probably say this every time in a season where they hit 500, but let's get over it and never see it again. How does that sound to everybody, right? We're 500 right now. Let's win on Friday. We'll go over 500, and let's never go back to 500. Let's just go on a run here. Let's get hot. Let's ride the the feeling of a nice sweep at Wrigley Field over the stinky New York Mets, and let's go on a little run here. Doesn't that sound nice yes. to everybody? Yes. Wouldn't it be nice? Um, so that yeah, that that's what I'm looking for. And uh, you know, again, 
this this series with the Brewers, first of all, I, I, I hate the way the schedule goes over the years. Like, the Cubs are going to have three series with the Brewers now in, in the first, you know, what is it, six series of the entire season? Mm. I hate that, Brendan. Yeah, I don't know what to tell you, man. Email Rob Manfred. It, it just is so odd to me, and this has happened before, uh, you know, where the Cubs have had all of their games with a division rival, and, it, you know, not that all of them are done now, but, you know, they're all done by a certain point, and it just is so odd to me. Like, you know, we're just get, getting so many games out of with the Brewers out of the way in April. It just, I, I, I don't like it. Um, but what I was going to say is, you know, you... For a team that you're expecting to be kind of volatile, right, and in a division that that you expect to be very close and has been close to start this series, again, no one is really, you know, blowing the cover off the, the ball or running away with the division in so much as you can in 18 games, but you, you got to win these series against the Brewers. You know they're going to be close. You know the Brewers are ha, have made their success over the last few years, winning close games, finding ways to grind out those 2-1, to 3-2 to two type games. Uh, and we saw the Cubs do that a little bit in this series with the Mets. Got to take it into a series with one of your division opponents. And for a team that, you know, as you look at this division, certainly threatens to be one of those teams near the top as this season goes on. So uh, that last series with the Brewers was not a good one. So let's make this one a good one. Finish off this homestand on the right note. Uh, and again, like I said, let's let's get over 500 and never look back. But I think that is all that we have for you. Uh, very good vibes coming out of this Mets series. Very nice to be on here talking about a solid series win, a series sweep, and you know, feeling like we can kind of head in a better direction here uh, from this point on with this Cubs team. So as always, we thank you guys for listening to the Cubs Related Podcast. We will be back with you on Sunday when the Cubs and Brewers finish up their series. And as always, go Cubs.